You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. My name is Tyler Holder, and I have the amazing honor and privilege of serving as your Director of Adult Ministries. And this morning, as we look at 1 John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at this one central idea, and that is this, is that the foundation of authentic fellowship is God. The foundation of authentic fellowship is God. Now, oftentimes when we talk about the word authenticity, sometimes we have erroneous ideas or bad ideas of what authenticity is, right? But if we're honest, we all desire authenticity at some level. We desire authenticity in our relationships. We desire authenticity in our business transactions. We desire authenticity in our education, in our school. We desire authenticity really in every facet of life. Now, authenticity comes and goes, and it's ebbs and flows in life. And for me, one of the biggest waves of authenticity came a little over 10 years ago. 10 years ago, actually this past Friday, my wife and I got engaged. Now, guys, did you know that your wife keeps track of that date? (laughs) I didn't. It's news to me. So July 21st, 10 years ago, Janelle and I got engaged. Now, leading up to that moment in my life was a huge wave of authenticity. I wanted more than anything to buy Janelle the most authentic, amazing ring that I could. Now, there were a few problems. One, I was poor. That was was really just the only problem. I was poor. (laughs) Didn't know what I was doing. And as I began to step into this kind of culture of ring buying, I determined that I needed to really up my game a little bit. So guys, we're going to go back to school here for a moment. Do you guys remember the four C's? Anybody? Cut, color, clarity, and carrot? Right? This has nothing to do with 1 John 1, by the way. You can check out right here. Cut, color, clarity. I quickly realized that in the world of engagement rings, this is a big deal. Why? Well, because I don't want to buy a cubic, a, cubic, a cubic zirconium, right? I want a nice diamond. I want the biggest diamond I can find. That's the nicest that I can find. So now I cheated a little bit, now just a little bit. I took Janelle with me and I said, look, I'm totally lost with everything that's going on in front of me right now. You need to tell me exactly what you want. She was super gracious. She said, I want white gold. Guys, did you know there's multiple colors of gold? Right? There's rose gold, there's yellow gold, there's platinum, there's rubber gaskets. I wasn't going to get her a rubber gasket. So I want white gold. Okay, praise the Lord. I can, I can deal with that. Don't give me choices. I want any cut of diamond except a round diamond. Okay, so that leaves me 28 choices. I'm a little worried about that. And I want it to be a real diamond. Okay, got it. So you want white gold. Something about not having a round diamond, so I have choices there, and you want real diamonds. I can handle that. So I work all summer long, and I go to the jeweler, and right before I go to the jeweler, she says, hey, make sure you get a set. A what? Get a set. A set of what? What am I buying right now? I'm not buying tires. A set of what? Well, apparently wedding rings come in sets. Again, news to me, there's an engagement ring and then there's a bridal set. So I go in and I put my money on the counter and this wonderful gentleman helps me and I buy this ring and a couple weeks later I fly up to New York and I'm walking down a wooded trail with my wife and I reach into my pocket and I pull out this. 
and I show it to her. Really, I don't show it to her. She's really confused at this point. I get down on one knee and I say things that probably didn't make any sense at the time. <laughs> I put it on her finger and the first thing she does, what's the first thing anybody would do at that point? She punched me in the chest. <laughs> then she cried and we kissed and it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> and I stood up. In fact, this is what she looks like. This was 10 years ago this past Friday. Look at that smile. She hadn't changed one. I love the awes. If I put my picture up there, it'd be like, oh. <laughs> she gets an awe. I'll let her know that. That was 10 years ago this past Friday. So I stood up, really probably a little bit too prideful in my heart. And I looked at her and I said, babe, I listened. I knew what you wanted. We went shopping. I put my money on the counter. I got you white gold. That's what you wanted. I got you diamonds because apparently that's important. And I knew. You mentioned the word round. So I got you the biggest round diamond I could find. And as I was taking her ring today, she said, hey, if you lose it, that's great. I can get what I want. Okay, that's fine. I got the most authentic thing I could find. I thought I listened, but I really didn't. And today, as we look at 1 John chapter 1, what we're going to see is we're going to see that God desires the same level of authenticity, in fact, even more with our fellowship, our fellowship with him and our fellowship with other believers. In fact, God desires fellowship so much so that this whole message, this whole thing centers around one point, and that's this, the foundation of authentic fellowship is God. Nothing more, nothing less. It's God. Our fellowship, our desires, what we do, our interactions center around as believers in Jesus Christ, one thing, God Almighty. And in 1 John chapter 1, we're going to see four questions that we need to ask in order to determine where we are in our authentic fellowship. Look at 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. John's writing and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The first thing we see is that we need to ask the question, have we had an authentic experience? Now, 1 John starts a little different than almost any other epistle we have in the New Testament. Remember, when we studied the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 1 starts with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I write to you, the Ephesians, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, an addressing. There's a, almost a welcome. Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm writing about. John doesn't do that. John jumps right in. Because he has a burden, he has a passion, he has something that's been laid on his heart that he wants to share to those that he's writing to. His burden is rooted in an authentic experience with Jesus Christ. Notice the words he uses just in the first two verses. He says things like, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, we have touched, it has been made manifest to us, we have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you. John uses words as if he were in a courtroom defending Jesus Christ. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've touched it. I've stinking ate dinner with the guy. He was real. He is who he says he is. He was who he says he was from eternity past. This is who Jesus is. And guess what? I've experienced it. 
So if we were to take a poll just on the first two verses of 1 John, true or false, John had an experience with Jesus. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. He couldn't help but share it, though. John's amped up. He's ready and rearing to roll. He wants you to see and know that not only has he had an experience, but he wants you to experience the same type of thing he just has. So let me ask you, right as we jump into understanding authentic fellowship, have you first had an authentic experience with the risen Savior? You cannot have fellowship with God. You cannot have fellowship with other believers if you haven't first had an authentic experience with Jesus. It's impossible. On the other side of that coin, there's those that have had an authentic experience with Jesus. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and he is gracious and kind and he has renewed our souls. Let me ask you, do you have the same fervency and tenacity that John does? Would you say you've heard, seen, tasted, and proclaimed Jesus? Would you look others in the face and use the same type of phrasing that John does? Hey, I'm pretty excited right now. Let me tell you what I've just experienced. So often in my own life, I have thought it best to can up and save my joy in the Lord because it's, well, it's too sweet to share, right? Wrong. Wrong. So this morning, if you're here and you have doubts and you're asking questions and you don't really know what this Bible thing is all about and Jesus is a great historical figure and a great philosopher and all of these things, that's so great and I'm glad you're at that point. But let me tell you, he desires to have an authentic experience with you. If you're here and you've had an authentic experience, then man, I hope that 1 John 1 will ramp up the fires of your soul to get excited and passionate about Christ again. So in order for us to understand authentic fellowship, we have to first see that we need, we must, we have to have an authentic experience. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The second question we have to ask if we're going to pursue authentic fellowship with God is this, is that are you in authentic fellowship? Now, I know when I say the word fellowship, half of you have in your minds a musty, dirty, gross room in a basement somewhere playing Bible bingo. Hey, praise the Lord. Others of you are thinking fellowship is something that's often forced upon me. I have to sit with people I don't like, talk about things I don't care about in an environment I really don't want to be in because that's what I'm supposed to do. Both of those are so wrong. In fact, they couldn't be further from the truth. Oftentimes here at Harvest, we actually go to school on Sunday mornings, and I want to take us to Greek school really quick. The word that John uses here in verses 3 and 4 for fellowship is a very specific word. And it's this word, it's koinonia. You've probably heard this word before, or if you've been around long enough, you uh, have probably seen koinonia Baptist Church on some corner. And let me tell you, this is the Greek definition. You guys ready? You ready? I don't think you're ready. 
When you study Greek, this comes up. Koinonia means Hawaiian punch and stale cookies in a musty room with Bible bingo. You were right if you thought that. Now, clearly that's not true. They didn't have Hawaiian punch back then. That's not true at all. Koinonia actually means this. Association based upon the sharing of something in common. So when we use the word fellowship, whether we realize it or not, it's rooted in this Greek word koinonia, which means an association based upon the sharing of something in common. So if you look at the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1, you'll clearly see that the commonality that distinguishes fellowship is a real and practical sharing of eternal life with God the Father and God the Son. The reason why we can gather with each other if we're believers in Jesus Christ is because we have in common a central experience. That experience is when the gospel intersects your life and you repent, confess, and believe in Christ. John Piper made this statement about fellowship. He said, fellowship is a personal experience of sharing something in common with others. It's the pleasure of being in a group when you see eye to eye on what really matters. It's having similar values and responding with the same kind of affections to what really counts. The difference between Christ-centered fellowship and Notre Dame football fans is just that, Jesus. Jesus. When I was 17 years old, a little over 13 years ago, 13, 14 years ago, I'm going to do math in my head real quick, it's never a good thing. When I was 17 years old, the gospel invaded my life. And at 17, when I repented and placed my faith in Christ, something miraculous happened. I was immediately transferred from the realm of darkness, Colossians 1 says, to that of spiritual life. And all of a sudden, I shared something in common with a huge group of people. So at 17 years old, I connect with a 68-year-old guy who brings me into his home to show me how to read and understand Scripture. What does a 17-year-old have to do with a 68-year-old? Nothing except Jesus. It's fellowship. It's the sharing of something in common. It's participating together through Christ. Now at this point, hopefully you sense and feel the awkward tension in the room. Our small group knows that I, I thrive on awkward situations. So you may not know what I'm thriving right now. But every week when we gather, every week when we come and worship Christ, whether it be through reading His Word, hearing it proclaimed, lifting our hands in worship, falling on our knees in prayer, weeping before the Lord, every week when we do that, what we're doing is we're participating together in fellowship if we're believers in Jesus Christ. Now the question you should be asking is, what about those that are here this morning that haven't had an authentic experience? They should feel the tension in the room. They should look at you with a quizzical look and say, why in the world are you doing that? What is this all about? There should be attention, and it's a good thing. The only thing I can think to relate it to is, is, well, is, is if I were walking to a CrossFit gym. <laughs> I don't know, if, are there any CrossFitters here? If there are, then you automatically cringe because I called it a gym and you call it a box. Point of awkwardness number one. Not only that, if I were to walk into a CrossFit gym, then I would quickly realize, or if you've ever talked to anybody that does this, you quickly realize they don't 
just lift weights or exercise. They throw wall balls and lunge and cling things, whatever that is. They don't just do pull-ups, they kip. Google it. They don't eat calories, they measure macros. There's this culture, there's this perspective, there's this language, there's this commonality that you see when you enter into something like that. The same is true of the church of Jesus Christ. When somebody enters in and they're not a part of this, they haven't had an authentic experience and they're witnessing us worshiping the Lord, it is different. And it should be. And God calls us to this authentic fellowship. Notice what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is referencing a joy that is only found in verses 1 through 3. A joy that's found when he communicates the authentic experience he's had with Jesus and you reciprocate. When he goes to you and shares with you what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's experienced, what he's proclaiming to you and you respond with repentance, that's the greatest joy John has ever experienced. And may I say to you and me today that the greatest joy as believers that we can ever experience is when we share what we've experienced, what we've seen, what we've heard and how Jesus has wrecked our lives with somebody else that doesn't know who he is and they in turn respond in faith. That's the epitome of joy in the Christian life. So let me ask you today, have you experienced that lately? Do you have an unashamed witness for the Lord? Are there times when you have used such fervent words as John does? Or do we let off the accelerator at times? Coasting in our lives. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is truth. No, that's not what it says. That God is love. No. That God is just. No. What's it say? That God is what? Light. And in him is no darkness at all. So why does John use a word like light to describe God here. If you were to read the rest of 1 John, you'll see that God is described as truth, just, and love later on in 1 John, but that's not how he begins. He begins by saying God is light. Light embodies all that's true, all that's pure, all that's praiseworthy. I have a five-year-old son, and never once has he told me he's scared of the light. Never once. In fact, he sleeps with his light on still to this day. Never once have I jumped out of the light and scared Janelle. I'm not afraid to walk down a well-lit alley. Why? Because light isn't where evil dwells. Darkness is. So when John says God is light and in him there's no darkness at all, he's telling us that in God, we have the embodiment of all that is pure. Throughout Scripture, God is described as light in multiple different ways and multiple different facets. And this morning, I want us to look at five aspects of light and what it does for us. The first is that light guides our steps. 
In Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The second aspect is that light strengthens our resolve. Again, in Psalm 27, 1, it says, The Lord is the light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Again, you're not afraid to walk in light. You don't stumble in light. You stumble in darkness. The third aspect of God as light as we look in Scripture is that light steers us away from sinful acts of darkness. If you'll remember back to Ephesians, my favorite passage in Ephesians is in Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. A fourth aspect is light exposes darkness. Again, in the Gospel of John chapter 3, in that wonderful conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus comes right after John 3.16. Sometimes we stop reading there. You should keep reading. It just gets better. John 3.19 says, Light has come into the world and people loved darkness. Light exposes it. And finally, an aspect of light that we see in Scripture is that light assures us of eternal life. In John 8.12, it says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. There's an aspect, there's a facet of God, and we don't understand it until we walk in the light. If we're honest, and if you're honest, you know that when you're born, before you have ever encountered, had an authentic experience with Jesus, you were comfortable walking in darkness. It's the only thing you ever knew. And when light shatters that darkness, you see the beauty that is light, walking in the light. So the first thing we see if we are to experience and explore God as the foundation of authentic fellowship is that we have to have first an authentic experience. Then we have to ask the question, are we in authentic fellowship? The next question we ask is rooted in verses 6 through 10. Look at what 1 John says. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look down at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The third question we have to ask if we are to understand God as the foundation of our fellowship is this. Are you a good liar? Now notice I didn't ask if you lie. Because if I asked that, everybody would ultimately raise their hand because if you don't, you're lying. <laughs> and I got you. No, it's, it's not have you lied. It's are you a good liar? In verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, John begins with this phrase. If we say... And in those three verses, what we'll see is three specific statements that will help us understand and gauge how good we are at lying. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the first aspect, first statement that we see is that we lie to others. 
Notice what he says in verse 6. It's this perspective that if we are walking in darkness, but tell others we're walking in light, guess what? You're a liar. And you're lying to them. John uses an interesting word here, though. He uses the word practice. He says, if we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We practice a lot of things. We practice how to be a good ball player. We practice how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good son, how to be a good daughter. Practice how to be a good employee. Practice how to be a good speaker. We have to practice how to be a good pastor. We practice how to be good at all these things. We practice, 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 practice. And what John is telling us here is that if we look somebody in the face that is walking in the light, and we tell them we are too while we walk in darkness, then we are not practicing the truth, which means we're practicing lies. I have the awesome privilege, and you've given me the amazing privilege, of engaging in, and interacting a lot with the college community that's here at Harvest. And I sit down, and, and at times I'll sit across from a young man, and, and I have this awesome opportunity to look him in the face and say with all the grace and love in my heart, bro, you're lying, and you need to quit walking in darkness. You need to turn away from that sin, because you love it more than Jesus right now. And you're lying to me. And I say it with love oftentimes. Sometimes I say it with sternness. But it's more often not than love. And the reason why I do that is because my heart and my desire for them is that they not walk in darkness. That they not live a life that's based in a lie. But that they would repent and turn back. That I would repent and turn back when I have chosen to walk in darkness. When we lie to others about where we are walking, when we tell them we're a light walker, when we're really a darkness walker, then we are lying to them. So let me ask you a question. Are you a good liar? Have you ever done this? Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The second statement that we see here is that we lie to ourselves. Notice the progression. First, we lie to others, and we don't practice the truth. Now, in verse 8, it's progressed from living a life of lying to others to now living a life where we're deceiving ourselves. John uses a, an amazing word when he uses the word deceive in verse 8. It's the Greek word planeo, and here is what it literally means, to cause someone to believe an untruth. So with that in mind, let me read verse 8 again for you. If we say we have no sin, we cause myself, I cause myself to believe a lie and the truth's not in us. I'm lying to myself. I'm deceiving myself. And when we make such a blatant statement like we have no sin, we're clearly living a life of deceit. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. Right now, this is going through your mind. I've never said I've never sinned, right? Has anybody ever said that? No, nobody said that. You know what we say instead? We say things like, well, you wouldn't understand. I say that all the time. Baby, 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 whoa, whoa, hit the brakes a little bit. You wouldn't understand. Jax really did do that. It wasn't me. Or we say things like, oh, if you only knew who my parents were, then you would understand why I have to act this way. Or we say other things like, wait, wait, wait a second. 
it was practically free. Their backs were turned when I took it. We make statements like that. And what we're doing when we make statements like that is we're excusing our sinful activity. We're deceiving ourselves. Can I just be honest with you for a moment? And hear me with, with as much love in my heart as I can muster. Please, 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 if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, don't use your past as an excuse for your present sin. Don't do it. When we are intersected, Colossians chapter 1 tells us we're brought from the domain of darkness into life. We're told that in Christ we're a new creation. Yes, we have pain. Yes, we have struggles. Yes, we have baggage. Yes, we have hurt. But please hear me. Don't anymore allow that to define who you are in Jesus Christ. And don't use it as an excuse for sin. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the final aspect of the progression. Not only do we lie to others, not only do we deceive ourselves, but finally we call God a liar. We call God a liar. Look at what it says. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, who's him? Well, God, a liar and his word is not in us. Understand that when you determine in your own life, in your own mind, in your own right, whether or not you are sinful, you are saying, I know more than God does. And he's looking down at you saying, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, I'm going to trump you every time. So when I look at my wife and I say, babe, it's not my fault. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean that. It's not wrong. Just overlook it and bypass it. What I'm saying to God is, I know more than you do about this specific subject. When we do that, we're calling God a liar. And at the end of the day, I want my chips to fall with him more than with me. I want to lean into his understanding of sinfulness and not my own. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you probably have noticed that I skipped over verse 7. Let's hit back that real quick. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. This is the one contrast we see. I can choose to be a liar. I can choose to lie to others, to lie to myself, to call God a liar. Or verse 7 tells me that I can choose to walk in the light. And what happens when I walk in the light? Well, two things happen when I walk in the light. Notice what he says in verse 7. But if we, notice it's we and not you, it's a we collective. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then two things happen. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You have a decision to make. If you've had an authentic experience with Jesus Christ, if the gospel has intersected and invaded your life, if you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus, you've repented of your sins, you've confessed them to the Lord, you have placed your faith and trust in Him, then hear me say you have a decision to make. You can walk in light or darkness. If you walk in light, don't ever expect, or if you walk in darkness, don't ever expect to have true, honest fellowship with God and with other believers. If you walk in the light, then you reap the joy 
of having fellowship with God and other believers. Here's why. If we're walking together in this life and I'm living a lie, then you'll never honestly know who I am. How can I have fellowship with you? And if I'm walking in this life with you, continually deceiving myself, lying to you and calling God a liar, then how in the world could I have true, authentic fellowship with Him? Choose to walk in the light. Look at verse 9. This is probably the second most quoted verse in all of Scripture. Chances are you have it on a coffee cup or on a nice like piece of wood above your toilet or somewhere in your home. I don't know why I would be above the toilet. Let's look at what verse 9 says. John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin by asking the question, have we had an authentic experience? Are we in authentic fellowship? Are we a good liar? And finally, do we want forgiveness? Do we want forgiveness? Are you interested in forgiveness? Let's break verse 9 down a little bit. He says, John says, if we confess our sins, he chose those words very purposefully. He could have said, if you confess somebody else's sins. And that would have given us all a pass. It's easy for me to tell you my son's sins. It's easy for me to confess to you and to the Lord my wife's sins. I can confess the guy at Chick-fil-A that was late on giving me my order sins. That's easy. He doesn't say that. He says, if we confess our sins, it's personal. It's intent. You're not confessing somebody else's. You're confessing yourself. And then the word confess. He uses another awesome word in Greek called homologeo, which has its definition rooted in an acknowledgement or an admission to a punishable deed or sin. And oftentimes we view confession more like an apology and less like a confession. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed this, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry that I looked at that woman with lust in my eyes. You're the one that created her. God, I'm sorry that I treated my child like I did. Sometimes anger just pops up. God, I'm sorry that I did X, Y, and Z. Whereas confession is me agreeing with God. God, I know in my heart of hearts that what I just did was wrong. And I'm confessing that to you. I'm not making excuses. I'm not placating you. I'm not saying something I don't believe. I know and agree with you that that was sin and that's horrible. And it deserves death and punishment and eternal damnation. But because of your cross, because of your son, because of the blood that he shed for me and because of my authentic experience with him, I'm begging you to cleanse me, renew me, and wash me. Do you notice the difference? We can apologize all day long. John's not saying if we apologize about our sins. He's saying if we confess our sins, if we agree with God on the severity of our sins, that's what he's telling us to do. And the beautiful thing is, is that he's writing to believers in Jesus Christ. So he's not writing to non-believers. 
Oftentimes when we hear the word confession, I think we immediately think it's only at that point when I confess my sins and place my faith and trust in Jesus, never again in the rest of my Christian life will I have to confess. That's wrong. You should live a life of confession. I should live a life of confession because I'm not perfect and neither are you. Notice what it says next. If we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. The word for faithful is characterized by faithful affection or allegiance. Did you know that God has affection for you? So much so that when you decide to walk in darkness, his heart is yearning for you to be back in fellowship with him. It's not as though you walk in darkness for a season and then you got to go search for God as if he's walked away to the grocery store. It's he's waiting because he's faithful to you and he's faithful to me. And he's just. Oftentimes when I think of the word just, can I just tell you what, what comes to my mind? Kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, 1970s Arnold Schwarzenegger, not now. Arnold Schwarzenegger sitting, buff guy on a throne waiting to just throw the hammer down on me. When I think of God as just, that's the initial picture that comes to my mind. Do you want to know what John says here? He uses a very specific word. And the word he uses means free from favoritism, self-interest, bias, and deception. Let me break that down. This is what that means, that God's not sitting there saying, man, I'm, I'm really hoping Tyler repents and confesses today because I really like him. But if Pastor Ben does it, oh man, I might have to let him come back again because I'm really biased. I, I like Tyler more than him. No. When it says God's just, he's free from favoritism. He's free from bias. And he's waiting for us to confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The latter part of that verse gives a picture of being free or purged from evil. So this morning, whether or not you are somebody that has never had an authentic experience with Jesus or all the way on the other end, a discouraged saint in the Lord who has been in a relationship with Jesus Christ for years or anywhere in between, will you hear me say? We have, have, have to have a life of confession. It doesn't just happen once at salvation and that's it. It happens over and over and over again. So when you look at verse 9, here's the question I want you to ask. What side of the if are you on? Are you on the side that walks in darkness? Are you on the side that lies to others? Or on the other side, are you on the side that walks in light? That lives a life of confession? Have you confessed sin, found forgiveness, and restored authentic fellowship with God? and other believers. Have you? This morning, here's my hope, and here's what I would love for us to do. Instead of just getting up and walking out and going on with our day, thinking about what's next in our schedule, would you pause for a moment and just ask the simple question, do I need to confess my sins today? Whether that be for the first time entering into an authentic experience with Jesus, or whether that be for the umpteenth time because of your habitual sin, will you confess your sins today?
Will you confess your sins to somebody that you've wronged? Will you spend time in prayer in this moment, beginning today, and confess to the Lord? So as we come to a close, I want to invite you to have a time of confession. After I pray and as we sing, don't let this moment pass. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to continually live a life of confession and make today a day of confession for you. So as I pray and as Micah sings, let me invite you, if you want to come to the altar and pray and confess, do that. If you want to sit in your seats and kneel before the Lord, do that. If you need to confess to your wife or to your children or to somebody else here, then do that. But let's start living a life marked by confession and fellowship with God and one another. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful, Lord, that you give us the grace and the call to confess our sins to you. So, Father, I pray over these men and these women in this room right now that those that are here that have yet to experience you and your grace and beauty and salvation, Father, I pray that you would draw their hearts today that they would for the first time repent, confess, and believe in who you are. Lord, I pray for those that have been in an authentic experience with you for years, days, moments. Lord, that you would challenge our hearts to live a life of confession. And Lord, may today be the first day of that. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.